0: hello and welcome to the climate chats podcast my name is christian friedrich today's guest in our podcast is dr christiane fröhlich christiane fröhlich is a research fellow at the giga institute of middle east studies where she works on questions that revolve around migration and mobility welcome thank you With this being the fourth episode of the podcast, it's almost a tradition that our guests introduce themselves. Um, Would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Who are you? What are you working on?
1: I don't mind at all. Um, I'm a peace and conflict studies person by training. I have a PhD in sociology, but I always concentrated on peace and conflict studies. Um, My background is in environmental conflict research, um, and I began with resource conflicts. Um, I worked a lot on water issues, and in particular the water conflict between Israelis and Palestinians in the Jordan Basin. Um, This was my PhD. Uh, Then I moved from there to broader security uh, implications um, of climate change. And I moved a little bit north to Syria um, regionally, where I worked on, um, well, basically the idea that has become and still is a strangely popular in um, in the policy field that environmental migration um, may have been an untold pre-story of the Syrian uprising, which mm-hmm. has now become a, one of the most violent wars that we have today. Um, And from there, after this, I moved to, uh, I broadened again (laughs) from climate-induced migration. um, I moved on to more generally forced migration. So I don't Mm -hmm. only work on environmental migration anymore, but also on um, conflict-induced migration and development-induced migration.
0: Um, As you mentioned, you've done lots of research around topics of migration, forced migration, um, environmental crises, climate change. Would you mind to give us and the listeners a brief overview of how these issues interact and how and where, to, to which extent maybe even?
1: Yeah, what I can do is I can give you a little bit of an overview of the hypothesized relationship between global environmental change, human mobility um, and uh, conflict. Sounds great. Um first the the first part. Um, so global environmental change, um, which includes climate change but is not limited to climate change, it can also be other anthropogenically induced changes um, in the environment, um, can uh, will affect populations differently depending on which conditions people are living in. So, If you imagine um, a population that's highly vulnerable and not very capable of adapting to climate change, they will react differently than populations who are less vulnerable or not Mm -hmm. vulnerable um, and highly capable of adapting. Um If you think of different states in the global north and the global South, then it becomes pretty clear how the difference um, is mm-hmm. so in in the case that climate change or global environmental change is met with low vulnerability and um high adaptive capacity, migration is mainly labor migration. So if there's movement, um, it's usually economically induced in mm-hmm. some way. so. Um, it's about different layers of society who may be affected by um, by effects of um, climate change in a different um, or m- more affected than others, and they then di- diversify from agriculture, for instance, to other fields that don't uh, mm. that are not vulnerable to global environmental change. Okay. If it Um, if global environmental change is is met by high vulnerability and um, low adaptive capacity, basically there are three ways of reacting. So you can adapt in the situation. You can, for instance, be hit by a flood. Mm -hmm. Your house is destroyed. And then you have to rebuild it in a way that the next flood will not destroy it. But you stay in the same place. Okay. That's adapting in the in the situation. You can move, and I will come back to that. Or you are very vulnerable. You should really move, but you don't have the resources to do it. Not the financial resources, not the social resources. Mm-hmm. None of these. Mm-hmm. These are the so called trapped populations. In academic um, publications, you will find this as the keyword. So immobility is really one part of migration mobility, strangely, (laughs) as the the other side of the same coin. So um, often we focus very, very much on people who are moving. Mm -hmm. But actually the ones that we need to worry most about are those that should be moving but can't. So those are the immobile parts of populations. So the third one that I mentioned already is you move, Mm-hmm. Um, and there, you can um, basically go for a short time um, and come back as soon as it's um, as it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, you can be uh, part of an organized effort to um, resettle, um, or you can be forcibly displaced in a way that means you have to go quite far and cannot come back. And again. I don't have to, I think, explain. Um, There's different vulnerabilities in this in the sense that, A, depending on what your social background is and your socioeconomic background is, your status is, you will will have different means of adapting to this. Mm -hmm. And this has a huge influence on whether you... or on the kind of life that you are able to lead if you have to migrate. It can also be um, the kind of migration that I mentioned for more developed uh, societies that are hit by global environmental change because the better off parts of a society will be able to to move much earlier than uh, others and that will figure more, or they will self-identify more as economic migrants, actually, mm-hmm. not as uh, environmental migrants. So they will just see over time, okay, um, I can't do this kind of work anymore, or I can't live here anymore, but I have the means to move somewhere else. Mm. So they will simply go before it gets so bad that it's um, that it forces people to go. Okay.
0: Does that also leave the ones who stay in a more vulnerable state then? Because...
1: If people leave that are better off.
0: Yeah. Or is that um, just
1: a... That would be, that would be a, a question for for a study, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you can say this generally. Um, and it very much depends on the context. hmm um, how small a village is for instance whether it's a brain drain effect that really um, also um, has an effect on other people who are staying
0: okay is there would you say that there's an easy or easy-ish example to give to make it a bit more tangible to to me and our listeners what that actually means um, for example people who are hit by the same crisis but are able to adapt better. Compared to those who are able to adapt in in slower or even not not slower states or not even at all.
1: Mm. Um, the the example that I know best is um, Syria before the current war. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a what they call a century drought between two thousand five and two thousand and seven. Even though you will find different um, timeframes for this, because mm-hmm. I'm now going back to the um to the the example that i mentioned in the very beginning um that has become that has gained immense traction in the policy discourse um and there's a lot of different views on this and it's an ongoing discussion also in academic discourse but um generally speaking there was a severe drought that Syrians themselves would uh, or are characterizing as a century drought that affected not all of Syria, but the um, northern part mainly. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, when you think about a drought, then first of all, if you are a teacher and you don't do agriculture, if you work in government and you don't do agriculture, you will feel the effects of the drought, but it won't affect your livelihood in the way that it will affect farmers. That's pretty in, intuitive, right? Mm-hmm. And it was the same in in Syria. What we can see here as well is that um, this is something that I should have mentioned earlier, but I'm mentioning it now. Um, that migration can be internal and it can be international. And environmentally induced migration is usually internal. Oh, okay. So within Syria, there was always there has always been movement. Within the different governorates, um, to diversify livelihoods, especially for um, subsistence farmers, so people who really depend on agric- agriculture, mm-hmm. but uh, are not, they don't own a lot of land. Yeah, it's not huge tied
0: to property that they can take with them. Basically. Exactly. Okay. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, the drought affected these subsistence farmers Mm -hmm. more than other parts um, of the population living in the area that was mostly affected by the drought. At the same time as there was the drought in the north, other parts of Syria actually had more rain than usual. So this is also something that gets lost Mm -hmm. in in discourses like this, that when we talk about a drought as a pre-story of an uprising or of social upheaval, uh, upheaval what we think usually is, okay, so it's all of Syria, right? Mm -hmm. It must be, it must be Damascus, it must be Aleppo, all of these, and it wasn't really. Um, So what happened was that people from the north went to um, the south on migration routes that were pre-established. What changed because the drought was so severe was that it was not only single male family members that would go for one season and come back with the proceeds that they, with whatever they earned during um, that season, but it was whole families. And they would move together to the south where they then would work in very difficult circumstances. So they would live basically in the projects, in Mm -hmm. tents, on the fields, children wouldn't go to school, they would uh, work because otherwise the family wouldn't be able to survive. Mm -hmm. And they had to stay longer than they would normally um, in these migration routes. So it's sort of a severe uh, kind of circular migration that was Mm -hmm. uh, already established. So people draw on social networks that they had before because um, family members had already been there in years Mm -hmm. before They already knew who to call uh, in order to ask, do you have work for me? These kinds of things. Um, And then the crucial element here, and that I haven't really talked about this as much yet, um, is the connection to conflict. So, yes, there was a drought and yes, it was at least in part climate change related even though we don't have the uh, the um, scientific means to really tie one specific drought to climate change like mm-hmm. this, we can have broad idea of yes, it's probably related to to climate change, but we really can't scientifically prove this particular drought particular drought wouldn't have happened without global warming. But okay, so there was the drought. It was in part. Related to climate change. Yes, there was migration, and it was more than before. um, And it was because of the drought. And then the next step in this idea of, okay, this is an untold pre-story of the Syrian uprising. Finally, we we know why we were surprised by what happened in Syria. Is that it was those migrants who would flood, the idea is usually, they would flood to the cities Mm -hmm. that were already struggling because unemployment was very high all of these effects Um, and it was them who uh, brought about and maybe even organized the uprisings in the beginning and at this point I always uh, remind people that it was actually a peaceful uprising and it became violent after uh, Mm -hmm. the Syrian government intervened violently but the thing is when you so so, there's a, a couple of studies who um, very prominently published in very high level academic uh, outlets who make this connection. So they take um, climate data and they connect it to the social data of conflict outbreak. Mm-hmm. The problem with this is that um, the climate data, um, for instance, the rainfall data that was used was very unspecific. Um, It was very uh, broad in the sense of um, not being focused on Syria alone, but Mm -hmm. it included a huge area. So Um, not even
0: on regions, but on like whole... um,
1: It was not on the state level at all. Okay. Um, But it was about Mm -hmm. the whole region. Mm -hmm. It included parts of Turkey, Iraq, uh, Israel, Jordan, Mm -hmm. Palestine. It's huge. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So it was not very specific. And nobody had actually talked to Syrian farmers about what the effect actually was on their lives. So what I did was that I uh, traveled to Jordan and later to Turkey to talk to Syrian farmers about um, the effects of the drought. Uh, And what I found was um, that a... What I just said, yes, there was a drought, and yes, they um, they migrated in the way that I described. But um, most of them were either unpolitical or they were afraid to be politically active, mm-hmm. because in this strata of the uh, of a population or of the Syrian um, society, the likelihood that a member of your family who was not able to buy themselves out of army service would stand on the other side of the demonstration is fairly high Mm -hmm. and they had this. I'm really talking about um, very, uh, very difficult livelihoods. So there's other things on your mind than going to demonstrate. I'm not trying to say though, I'm I'm finishing in a, (laughs) in a moment. Um, I'm not trying to say though, that climate change didn't play any role Mm -hmm. because interestingly, the people who were employing the migrants, so people who were not affected by the drought because they were in the South, but they saw what the effect was on people who came to work for them um, from the North, they actually mentioned the drought as one of the several reasons for becoming politically active. So they actually said, so if the next drought hits us, drought hits us, then we are next, and we can see that nobody will help us with this.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they wanted to be politically active before that stage. Yeah, period. like a,
1: okay. a preemptive almost.
0: Uh-huh. Okay. Um, it's kind of a bonus question, and I don't think I mentioned it up front, but. Um,
1: <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh-huh.
0: But um, you also, in, as far as I can tell, in your work, you aim to take a perspective of. Um, post-colonialism and decolonization. Um, could you expand on that a bit? How is that important, especially when you look at the issues that you look at? Is that is that something that you could even briefly summarize or would that be like a completely different episode? I don't mean to put you on the spot. Just thought I'd ask.
1: Yeah, just let me mm-hmm. think for a second. So decolonial approaches, um, The the main idea of decolonial approaches is to a uncover power structures and then not only question them but change them in mm-hmm. a way that is more inclusive for marginalized voices. Being I'm being very general mm-hmm. here now, so don't judge me. No, no. <laughs> um, in the case of Syria, I mean decolonial approaches focus a lot on the global north. Rightfully so, because mm-hmm. they are the colonial powers. Um, in the case of Syria, nevertheless, I think it can play a role or it can help to have a decolonial perspective in the sense that um, when we look at the processes that I just described, then what becomes very obvious is that uh the, and it becomes very obvious from my from my uh, interviews as well that the Syrian government not only didn't do anything against climate change and they could have done something to alleviate the effects of the mm-hmm. drought in different ways. None of that happened. But they actually uh, used climate change as an excuse for um, not doing anything. So, you had regional governors saying, well, this is climate change, so we can't, it's not our That's fault, we can't regionally. do anything.
0: Okay.
1: Uh-huh. Um, and uh, to uncover these kinds of dynamics is, I think, the, the precondition or the prerequisite to, um, when the next drought hits, to be able to really uh, address the problems that arise if a drought like this or any other effect of global uh, global environmental change hits a population so in that sense i think the decolonial lens can can help
0: we're coming very close to the end of our conversation and um, i have one final question that i that i basically ask all our podcast guests and it pretty much goes like this if you had to name one pragmatic means of climate change that our listeners can take to to tackle climate change themselves. Um, do you have a recommendation from your perspective, from your expertise? What, what would that uh, means of change be?
1: Well, if you aim for climate justice, which I think is the right way of um, using climate action, then I would argue climate justice is always social justice. Mm-hmm. So um, in any action geared towards alleviating the effects of climate change, we need to be extremely conscious of the power disparities between different parts of society. So we need to, in every climate action, make space for marginalized voices to l- mainly listen. I'm talking as a as a white Western woman, to mainly listen and not... Um, patronize people <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um and to uh to really um yeah amplify uh, the voices that have hitherto not been heard and that goes for public discourse political discourse as well as academic discourse mm. and of course i mean vote climate vote green that's, that's the most practical thing that I can, that I can uh, answer here.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, if you, dear listeners, would like to listen to our podcast on a regular basis, please consider subscribing. It is free and it always will be free. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, but the easiest way to subscribe is to use the podcast app on your phone, search for Climate Chats, and click subscribe. There, you will have access to additional links and resources like the ones we just talked about. Of course, you can also listen to us by visiting the website of the Worldwide Online Climate Conference, Climate 2020. If you like our podcast or if you disliked anything, we'd really appreciate your feedback. Simply email us at contact at dl4sd.org or find us on Twitter at ftz underscore nk underscore Hamburg. Thank you. Dr. Fröhlich, again, for taking the time.
1: Thank you for the opportunity.
0: See you soon on the Climate Chats podcast and take care.